0: Welcome to the Dr. Patient Forum, a no-holds-barred patient advocacy podcast discussing why millions of pain patients continue to suffer, but most importantly, who caused the suffering. Join us weekly as we discuss how you can help end the untreated pain crisis.
1: Hi, for those of you who listened to our last two podcasts, you know they were on Narc's Care, which is a data analytics program that is attached to the PDMP, the Prescription Drug Monitoring Program, where they have risk scores on pain patients. And the information is put into the PDMP by pharmacies, pharmacists or pharmacy technicians. This podcast is with a pharmacist, and we do touch on that a little bit, but this is actually part three of a series on tips, So the first one was tips on what to say, what not to say when you're seeing a new pain provider. Part two was tips from a provider's point of view. And this will be part three, which is tips from a pharmacist's point of view.
0: Hey there, thanks for taking time out of your day and tuning into this episode of the Doctor Patient Forum podcast. A few weeks ago, or maybe four weeks ago, I was scrolling through TikTok and I came across this pharmacist that we're going to talk with today. And I said, "Man, he's getting his ass kicked by pain <laughs> patients." And 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 I, but you know what? This isn't uncommon. Oftentimes, pain patients need somebody to lash out at. So I wanted to reach out to this pharmacist. I said, "Hey, let's let's do a gig." So. Welcome to the show, Pharmacist Matt.
2: Claudia Beverly, it's great to be here. Thank you for reaching out. Yeah, you know, th- there are people on TikTok that, that find people to lash out to. And, you know, through my content, you can tell I'm not one of those pain patient haters.
0: Yeah, No, not at all. Not at all. Yeah. But, you know, I feel like even pharmacists, you must be under an, um, an immense amount of pressure from the feds. And that's what this episode is about. Getting yeah. a look into the life of a pharmacist and what the DEA has done to the same sanctity of the the patient-pharmacist relationship. So Matt, can you please explain to our listeners, what is the role of a PharmD? What, what is the difference? Sure. Is a pharmacist a PharmD?
2: So yes, a, a little bit of quick history. Up until 2000, there were two pharmacist degrees. There was a Bachelor of Science in Pharmacy, and then there was the Doctor of Pharmacy. Typically you had to get the Bachelor's of Pharmacy and then do another year training to get the PharmD. After 2000, the academic pharmacists of the world decided they didn't like that system. So they consolidated it into one degree, the doctor of pharmacy degree. So every pharmacist that graduated after 2000, is a doctor of pharmacy, and we have all very similar training. And our roles in in healthcare, 60% work in your community pharmacy, another 30% work in hospitals and institutions like that. And then another 10% kind of get distributed out into pharmaceutical industry, research, drug manufacturing, things like that. And and then there are even a few pharmacists that probably work at DEA. A bunch of them work at FDA, by the way. And the training of a pharmacist pharmacist is focused on pharmacology, how drugs work in the body, what their effects are on the body, how they affect disease processes. And a pharmacist is trained to look at a patient from that point of view to make sure that your drug therapy is appropriate, that it's working, that you're not suffering from things like polypharmacy, too many things. So that's kind of what we do on a day-to-day basis.
0: Yeah. Are you working in a hospital or, you know, an independent pharmacy? So I have,
2: hospital. I am not in a hospital. My wife threatened to divorce me if I did a residency and got a hospital job. So no, more, no extra training. I came right out of school and landed in an independent pharmacy, and I have been in out of school eight years, and I've been at two family-owned independent pharmacies. I have never worked in a chain. I know I have friends that have, and I have gotten a lot of information that way, but I have never worked for Walgreens, CVS, Walmart, Costco, any of those guys. Okay. I am strictly a independent guy.
0: So we're going to jump right into the lion's den. Somebody sure. goes into the, somebody, right. Cause that's what people are tuning in for. Somebody oh, yeah. goes to get their pain pills filled or their benzodiazepine or their vivants, And the pharmacist tells them, I can't fill this controlled substance. And I wanted to talk with you about, my first question is, has the DEA interfered with what a pharmacist can fill?
2: So the DEA in 2010 clarified the term, what's called corresponding responsibility. And you can find it in a publication called the DEA pharmacist's manual. That's about 110 pages summarizing the Controlled Substance Act and how it applies to pharmacies.
0: So light reading, Matt, yeah. 110, 110 uh, pages of enjoyable wow. reading.
2: And before I took my law exam for the state of Maryland, I read all 110 pages. So corresponding responsibility has been ratcheted up. They have essentially said, if there is any doubt about the legitimacy of a controlled substance prescription, the responsibility is on the pharmacist to figure out if it is legitimate. And what I mean legitimate, I mean appropriately prescribed doctor-patient relationship. Then they say that if you cannot satisfy that, then it is incumbent upon the pharmacist to use professional judgment to essentially not fill that order. Now, you mentioned Vyvanse. Typically, in my practice, ADHD meds are typically not a problem unless mom and dad are open and snorting them. Had that happen once, actually. Um, That was not a fun evening, I tell you. But that was a diversion issue that we notified the physician and that was resolved. Typically, we don't have issues with ADHD meds, typically, unless it's an insurance issue. Pain meds, on the other hand, um, pain management, that's where it gets more sticky. Because what you have happening is in 2010, DEA came out with this list of red flags. And I just happened to pull that list up. Pattern prescribing, irregularities on the face of the prescription itself. You know, e-prescribing has taken care of of a lot of that, but you still have old school docs who will handwrite a prescription. And even up until a couple of years ago, we still had the occasional screwball try to alter it for a higher quantity. That still happens.
0: You mean the the person trying to get it filled tries yes, to- Yes, ma'am. Really. The qua- I mean, look, and that, wh- I, I just put out some videos about this. We're never going to change this system, no. right? No. And, and I, I think if we can just all recognize, we'll never stop diversion. I would imagine that sending these scripts over electronically has cut down on- It is. You know, And of course, I mean, look, we look at the wonderful results we've had, right? No overdoses in the country. Life is
2: oh.
1: looking good. They're doing yeah. great. Doing great. And,
2: yeah. And, and the candy fentanyl as a parent scares the bejesus out of me. Typically in pharmacy, we don't have, unless somebody steals a prescription pad, you don't have to worry about someone altering prescriptions. It happens occasionally because people are people and there are bad apples in every. But that's one of their red flags. Cocktail prescriptions. I don't know if you guys are familiar with the term Houston cocktail.
1: I mean, we're familiar with some of the cocktails because they call it Holy Trinity. They call one like a and speedball we we know the stuff that is that what you're talking about yeah
2: that's what i'm talking about i was just trained that the houston cocktail was xanax soma and oxycodone but you know cocktail prescriptions have have pretty much gone away so we don't typically worry about those we still see a lot of people like guys i encountered this last week i had three people come into the pharmacy with out-of-state prescriptions they all had the same home address really Uh uh-huh
0: so people are still being pretty shady at the pharmacy that's too well,
2: bad. Here's the problem.
0: Well, wait a minute. Were they all in the same family? They all had the same address? Yeah. Oh, that, that's they- see, see that right there? No, thank you. Uh, I'm See, not but, doing that shit either.
2: But, you know, this used to be, I'm a second generation pharmacist. My dad has been doing it for 47 years. He can tell you about the time in the early 2000s when you would have people coming up I-95, stopping in at the pharmacy with that type of thing. The mom, the dad, the son all magically have the same maladies and the exact same cookie cutter opiate prescription. Mm-hmm. But, But to the most part, prescription drug monitoring programs you know, being aware of these trends, that largely has gone away.
0: Yeah. And once um, again, and, and it's been really successful. <laughs> that too. So, so Matt, it sounds like you have to be a, a pharmacist, a police officer, a lawyer. And I can't imagine yes. how stressful, because I remember I took a pharmacist deposition in my career as a court reporter, and she was mm-hmm. being sued for manslaughter because mm-hmm. she- she filled the wrong script and I was watching her cry her eyes out because she you know a baby died as a result Mm -hmm. of this and all I could be thinking of is here's pharmacist Matt he's filling a script a patient comes in to get their opioids filled but maybe that patient lived 45 minutes further north south east or west from the store and now she's upset Matt's upset he can't fill it and Matt, right. I would. I mean, what if your train of thought? Because I have, uh, you know, I mean, I got that ADHD myself, and I gotta concentrate. This must be very nerve wracking for you.
2: It is. Um, there, there is an immense amount of stress when it comes to dealing with people in chronic pain because of these these red flags that have to be resolved, and the corresponding responsibility. You know, if legally speaking, you know, if if a doctor, let's say we get a new pain doctor in my town, and he's less than honest, and he starts, you know, doing things that are borderline, you know, kind of gray, he's writing for a little more quantities than what normally you would see, or, you know, something like that. If, if the DEA Go in and bust him. Which, by the way, a pharmacy has no way of knowing a doctor's under investigation until they get raided, until their DEA license is revoked. By the way, we have no idea. Then they come to the pharmacy and they they get the list of all the prescriptions that were filled and who filled them, oh, wow, whose pharmacist wow. name is on that.
0: Oh, How? Oh my god, I would poop my pants. That's going to be very nerve wracking um, for you, Matt.
2: Well, you know it's it is a it is a stress, and then you throw in corporate policy on top of that. So for example, we know that CVS, Walgreens, Walmart have all been sued by the DEA for mm-hmm. inappropriate dispensing. And we know that they came up with the good faith dispensing checklist as a settlement out of one of those lawsuits.
1: Oh, I hadn't heard about that. I need to look oh, yeah, that, that. Can you share that?
2: that? That was word of mouth from a Walgreens pharmacist um, I, I don't have that in writing. Okay.
1: No, that's interesting. Um, you said it also that the pharmacist is supposed to resolve red flags. What does that yes. mean? Like, and how does the DEA know whether you did or not? Do you have your own like electronic health record system on the patient? So, how do they know that you looked into something?
2: So so this goes back to actually what your nurse practitioner friend wondered about. How, how do we document things at the pharmacy? The way it works is every single pharmacy has their own pharmacy uh, CVS has their own corporate software. Rite Aid built their own, Walgreens, and uh, Walmart. They have their own internal software platforms. None of those platforms talk to my platform. The only thing I have in my pharmacy database is what our pharmacy puts in. So, for example, it's, it's kind of like a mini EHR. We can put patient notes in. We can scan documents in. So, you know, if if a pain patient brought in their pain contract and wanted it put on file at my pharmacy, we could literally scan it into a document section and have it there for review. But as far as resolving a red flag, it can be a number of things. Um, If it's a digital prescription, we have the ability to add an annotation onto it. So if Jane Doe from Dr. So-and-so's Advanced Pain Management calls in and you know, we put the wrong do not fill date on Jane Doe's prescription. We need it changed to this. That's how we would document.
1: Okay.
0: <laughs> Are you restricted from filling both a benzo and an opioid together?
2: <laughs> well, that's a that depends. Um, it depends on the patient. It depends on the dose. You know, if somebody's been on a benzo for 10 years, and they're stable, and they're known to the pharmacy, and they're a local doc, and, you know, everything is reasonable, there's there's no reason not to fill it. Because I never
0: thing- I never had a problem, Matt. I was on a quarter milligram of clonopin for uh-huh. years. Quarter well, milligram. That's a good and, drug. Yeah, tiny little for Crohn's disease, especially mm-hmm. after I had my colostomy bag reversed, and it really worked well. And I, at the time I think I was taking one five milligram oxycodone a day. Okay. I never I never had problems with a pharmacist or a I actually never even had to choose. I was one of the fortunate ones. but I want to say seventy percent of the people that I've advocated for, they've all been forced to choose. and yeah. if they didn't, they had problems when they got to the pharmacy. that that's why I asked the question. So
2: so that is there is. I call it the war on benzodiazepines. Mm -hmm. I'm probably not the originator of that. I claim no credit, but. No. (laughs) um, There is this. Jihad on not using opiates and benzos together because you can have problems. They can, in some cases, a benzodiazepine can potentiate the euphoric effect from a narcotic. That's pharmacology. But, you know, the pharmacy I work at, we're a hospice pharmacy. Hospice people get benzos and narcs all day long. Right. You get your morphine, you get your benzos. They're the only group of, they're, they're like the, the angels. They have no problem. So whatever we can for them but anybody else with any sort of psychiatric issue getting them a benzo is like pulling teeth because yeah. the providers are scared to write them they're forced tapering people i have a lady that followed me from the previous pharmacy to the pharmacy where i am now and they have forced tapered her off of her benzos and she's having a terrible time yeah. and, a she, and and she can't her anxiety is so bad, she cannot function. But yep. the, the psych provider was like, nope, we're giving you one milligram a day, and you're just gonna have to suffer.
1: That's what's happening. We have so many people that they're made to choose. I was made to choose between the two. It's a shame because it's people who are stable. And these studies coming out showing that taking stable patients off of controlled substances, opioids, especially though, like it, it's actually more dangerous, you're having more adverse effects than leaving a mm-hmm. stable patient on the medication
2: we've gone from yeah my father can talk about this but you know in the old days if there was a problem you could actually get a hold of the doctor document what the conversation and make a decision nowadays pharmacists have a lot of trouble talking to providers getting through to them is difficult a lot of the time we're stuck talking to medical assistants who are very kind but have zero information oh my
0: god a medical assistant i don't want a medical assistant Oh, yeah. Trying to relay my medication to the pharmacist. No, thank you.
2: Yep. Oh, yeah.
0: I'd like to talk with you about the state pharmacy board. And have they been supportive of pharmacists who I almost feel are under siege by the DEA? Have they made any statements about this?
2: No. So so my understanding of how pharmacy boards and, and controlled substance work, what will happen is in each state... The DEA has a arm, a state arm called Division of Drug Control or some acronym thereof, okay? And and that Division of Drug Control or inspector will go into the pharmacies and do the inspections for DEA. Only if the State Division of Drug Control makes a case would a board of pharmacy get involved, because then there would be disciplinary action against the permit for the pharmacy and the licensure of potential pharmacists. But most of the controlled substance actions are done through DOJ, through State Division of Drug Control, and so on and so forth. Boards of pharmacy are not really involved, as far as I can tell. They've not made any statements about that.
1: To me, Matt, it seems like the DEA is not making it super easy for pharmacists, because I've... Like I've studied these red flags that they've given and I've watched Mm -hmm. these PowerPoint presentations given by the Mm -hmm. DPA. And there was one PowerPoint presentation where they actually said, we're not going to tell you all of the red flags because we expect you to just know what they all are. And I don't understand how they expect a pharmacist to know all this stuff, to resolve all this stuff. And what's happening is just like kind of with doctors you know you have your doctors that are under pressure so they just lash out at the patients but we've had so many stories of pharmacists really humiliating patients or like loudly in front of other patients and denying their medication and then or saying they're out of their medic they're out of stock even though how could they always yeah. be out of stock i mean well what-
2: i i can speak to that we'll come back to that first okay. as a pharmacist doing what you've just described is not ethical it's not professional Right. Um, when I have to tell someone that I can't fill their prescription, I try to do it in the least confrontational way possible. And I can tell you in eight years, I've been threatened with physical violence three times wow. over this. I've had my car vandalized once.
1: Wow. I think, Matt, this is what I, Claudia and I say this repeatedly. The government has created a pressure cooker situation where nobody right. wins. Nobody can right. do anything right because doctors are afraid, pharmacists are afraid, patients are afraid. Exactly. You know, like, there's no, It's a no one situation. And all the while, addiction rates haven't gone down and overdoses Correct. have skyrocketed. So what have they accomplished Correct. other than bringing in $38 billion in multi-district litigation funds going against these companies? Right. Matt, um, can,
0: can we touch upon uh, this 28 day versus 30, 31 day? I, I hear this all the <laughs> time. And yeah. I, I, I'm so confused by it, probably because okay. I'm dyslexic. But no, because okay. I've never I've never had problems like this. I go to the pharmacy for my medications, whatever they are, my methotrexate. I never they fill it and I leave. But Explain to me the 28 30 31 what sure. the hell is that?
2: So, so first, methotrexate when you have a non scheduled drug, most insurance companies pay for a refill at what we call 75 percent utilization. Okay, so if you have 100 methotrexate tablets, if you take up you know, if you've taken 75 of them, you know it's it's going to show in your pharmacy system that it could potentially be refilled and odds are it will be adjudicated fine and you can refill it, okay? Controlled substances, you can't do that. So a lot of people get hung up on this 28-day versus 30-day or, oh, last month has 31 days, the doctor has shorted me. When you look at a pharmacy fill record, okay, if you get a prescription filled on January 1st, 30 days. The next prescription that you would need to fill, you would have to probably fill on January 30th because the pharmacy keeps a running daily total based on day supply. Okay. We don't look at calendar days. If your doctor writes a 30 day supply and we fill it on January 1st, you're due for a refill on January 30th. We fill it on 30 days from that date, you would get your next because that is how it is adjudicated through the insurance. We bill on day supply. If your doctor writes a prescription for 120 oxycodone fives and it works out to be a 28-day supply, but your doctor says fill on the 30th day, we are legally bound to fill on day 30, not day 28.
1: So I don't understand why it's considered a red flag, though. Like in my state, so North Carolina they do investigations of doctors not based on complaints only. They do non-complaint-based investigations based on PDMP metrics alone. One of their metrics that causes an investigation is if a doctor writes a prescription for more than 28 days. So
2: I can't speak to where that, that, that's stupid. I don't know where that came from. It
1: doesn't make sense, right? No, I don't know where it came from either. It's just in North Carolina that they do that. And I don't understand why that's considered a red flag if a doctor writes a 30-day prescription. It makes no sense to me.
2: Here's here's what I can tell you. Um, every state, the state board, and Claudia saw the TikTok probably where I showed the Maryland State Pharmacy Law Book. Every state has the ability to adopt the Controlled Substance Act as is. So the federal law says a state may be more stringent than the federal standard. You cannot be less. Oh. So, for example, in the state of Delaware, a controlled substance prescription is good for seven days from the day written. In Maryland... They put a 120-day limit from the date written. Federally, there is no limit on the expiration of a controlled substance prescription, by the way. States are the ones that impose those laws. So it's very possible that North Carolina, through their state legislature, amended their Pharmacy Practice Act to reflect a 28-day opiate prescription.
0: Matt, I I call that the one-upping right? I'm going to one up and I'm going to do better. And this is what these states they've codified all of this bullshit, making it impossible for pharmacists to do their job for pain patients to get their medications filled. So now a state can actually implement more stringent rules than what the feds have done. And that that's just that's nonsense. But going back to that 20 versus 30, wouldn't that mean, Matt, that somebody runs out of their medication on at the end of day 28 and they can't get it filled until...
2: If the doctor writes mathematically a 28-day supply, but he tells you it has, on the prescription, this is a 30-day supply, the no, pharmacy it, is stuck.
0: Right. It, I, and you it, know what? I've got a friend who does this. She writes all of her scripts for 30 days. And, and I think it's... I, I don't know. It just seems wrong because we wouldn't do that to somebody who you know, needs their methotrexate. Right. right. I, I don't know. I don't know why doctors are doing that. I'm going to have to do more research, but Matt, I want to, we have a, uh, somebody who submitted a question. Sure. Uh, and she said, I broke my back on July 9th and also my L3, 4 disc has mm-hmm. ruptured. I'm mm-hmm. having a horrible time finding doctors to help me. My primary mm-hmm. doctor is given me three tablets of hydrocodone a day. It has not been mm-hmm. cutting the pain. Well, I get my refill from him, called into CVS for it to be filled tomorrow. And the pharmacy called and said, they have reached their limit and won't be getting it in. What does uh, that yes. mean?
2: That, it is that time of year, unfortunately. Um, the DEA, Department of Justice, uh, regulates controlled substance manufacture in the United States. They have the ability to set quotas on how many units of a narcotic are produced per year.
0: Do you know what the quota is?
2: I don't, I, and you know, I'm not sure where I would find that, but here's how this plays out. There are three major drug wholesalers in the United States that distribute controlled substances. Every pharmacy contracts with one. If your, pharmac, if your wholesaler that you contract with is out of hydrocodone because of the supply limits, they also have limits on how much they can distribute per year. It's not been uncommon in December for us to scramble for morphine for hospice patients because our wholesaler has hit the supply limit.
0: Oh my God, that's terrible. This that's... is so... And you know what, Senators, uh, there was a hearing. I, I they have no idea. My... No, and I spoke with my Senator about this and he said, well, the DEA cut production. And then yeah. the DEA said, no, we didn't want to but senator joe manchin insisted on so you know they're throwing the ball back to each other and nobody's willing to take the blame but all first of
2: all as i understand it a senator of the united states can't dictate the dea to do anything the dea is a the head of the doj is a presidential appointee
1: we can't get oversight on the dea like we've ask Congress. We've had other people ask Congress. It's like the DEA is allowed to just do whatever they want, whenever they want, however they want. It doesn't matter that they are destroying our country and healthcare because, you know, we have things like that Ruan decision, which is great, but I don't see how anything can change unless the DEA and state medical boards back off a little bit to let doctors be doctors, pharmacists be pharmacists, and patients have treatment again because right now everyone is in panic mode, it seems.
2: Oh yeah, Everybody. it's it is a stressful environment. The other thing we need to have happen is mandate that the insurance companies get the CDC guidelines out of hard limits. Do you know how many times a day we run into yeah. hard stops prior authorization because of CDC morphine equivalents?
1: From insurance companies? Which ones uh-huh. are all of them, and is it all 90, of them? Is it ninety it's, mme, fifty mme? What's it?
2: De- what? It it de- it depends. Fifty morphine milli- milligram equivalents. Usually, you can put in a drug utilization code to push it through. Sometimes, uh, but at ninety above ninety, forget it. It's a hard stop. You can't fill it.
1: You'll hear you like CDC when they rewrote this guidelines and have this new draft. You hear them say, "Oh, it was a mistake." we don't want we never wanted there to be a hard stop it was never intended to be a hard stop but if you look at the board of scientific counselor meeting minutes when they were discussing the cdc guidelines prior to them being published they Mm -hmm. say we need to get insurance companies on board we need to get law enforcement on board we need these people on board implementing these guidelines everywhere so i don't believe them that they didn't want them implemented because then they're the ones who encouraged insurance companies and law enforcement to do this to begin with. And now they're like, Oh wait, no, we didn't mean that. Well, yeah, you did. You asked for it.
2: And you could have a a perfectly legitimate patient with a legitimate prescription. And we are hamstrung at the pharmacy if it doesn't adjudicate because we are told as a red flag patients should not pay cash
1: right and that's another pro like that's the thing so I wanted to ask you Claudia I'm sorry I know you have this on your list of questions but I don't I, does your state have Knox care do you look at it if it does do you know anything so, about it so
2: that that sounds like we have an interstate database. It has a different acronym, but it is the Prescription Drug Monitoring Program for Maryland. Okay, and It links into nine states, and yes, we check that. Matter of fact, our software, pharmacy software provider just put in an automatic hookup to it, so I don't even have to go open a web browser and go into it. Put, they put my credentials into the pharmacy software, and I can now click a button, and I get a PDMP report. Yeah. I have caught people doctor shopping. Really? I have caught people pharmacy shopping. I have caught people doing all- all sorts of things.
1: What are you Primarily, supposed to do when you catch them? Are you supposed to call law enforcement?
2: So so technically doctor shopping and filling at multiple pharmacies is not illegal. What you do then is, ethical. pharmacist at that point, let's say you've a you've developed a real yen, as they say, for putalbutal acetaminophen, Fiorcet for your migraines. Okay. And you're going to two different doctors and you're getting 200 tablets a month, which is what I caught a lady doing, by the
1: way. Oh she was God. coming to
2: my pharmacy, paying cash. And she was going across the street to another pharmacy and using her insurance. At that point, an ethical pharmacist is going to notify both providers and the patient that this is this is happening and it's not appropriate. Um, you know, if you need 200 Fiorcet tablets a month, I, I would think that one, you may be diverting them. You may be sharing them. You could be selling them. I don't know. Or or the person has substance use disorder and needs help. But either way, you, you notify the providers and you try to let them resolve the situation by talking to each other and the patient and getting things resolved. I can tell you another story really quickly. My dad and I work at the same independent. And a couple of years before I started working there, he was working on a Friday night and a guy came in with a prescription for he said his sister and he wound up lying to my father about something, whether it was insurance or address, something was wrong. So my father politely told the guy, look, you know, something's wrong here. I don't feel comfortable. I'm not going to fill your prescription. The guy got indignant and went out and started sitting in his car. Well, we have private security on some nights, randomly, just for this sort of occasion. And the security guy noticed that, hey, this guy hasn't left yet. So he called the local police. They came over, and the guy was one of those guys that drives up 95. He had three guns, five thousand in cash, and prescriptions from all up and down the. Country. So you know, when a pharmacist, I mean, you know, we we want to help everybody, but when you know of instances like this it it makes it difficult because there is no cut and dry answer and i have some tips for how to maybe make that better for pain patients yeah
0: that would be great but can i can i interject listen uh-huh. we've got we the person that you just described you just described my cyber stuff Cyber stalker, you know, with guns and waiting outside because there are bad apples, and I think right. the, pain com- the, the pain community better start to acknowledge this. Now we, well, they have we, to. We'll, we'll never be able to stop diversion, but Matt, like I said, I've seen you get your ass kicked on TikTok, so I just <laughs> wanted to say that. All right, so give us because we're going to wrap up the show pretty quickly. Let's end on some some great tips.
2: Okay, so. If you can get away from a box pharmacy, and the reason I say this is there. Ability to order controlled substances is different. They tend to do weekly orders. That's why they'll say, oh, you need to come back in four days when I have your drug stuff." They, they have a different, different ordering scheme to prevent or deter pain patients. So use a small pharmacy, build that relationship with the pharmacist. Mm-hmm. Two, have your provider or if it's handwritten, double check your prescription before you leave. Make sure they're putting in the right fill dates. If it's a sequential prescription, make sure it's for the next three months, and make sure you guys are getting the right fill dates, because when you get to the pharmacy, when a doctor puts a fill date in, that's it. We can't modify it, and then we've got to go through the rigmarole of getting a hold of the doctor. Do your due diligence, double-check your prescriptions. Three, remember, your pharmacist has a has a legal pressure and not all the information, and, and we have to make a decision without all the facts. We don't get to see your medical chart. You know, if we ask you a question politely, help us out by answering it because we're trying to provide you meds. When a pharmacist talks to you and they put something in your pharmacy chart, it's usually to help. We don't put in there Bob Jones is an asshole. Don't fill his prescriptions. You don't put stuff like that in there. Normally, we put stuff in there that will, will jog our memory to make sure that we can help.
1: Let me just interrupt you really quickly. Do pa- you know patients have access to electronic health records? Do patients have a right to see what's in their pharmacy records, or no?
2: You know that's a good question. I don't know the answer to that question. I would think they would. Okay. You know, every year we have people come in and fill out forms for tax printouts. OK. And they get printouts. But as far as um, doctor documentation, yeah. you know, if somebody really wanted to see that and you had a good relationship, odds are your pharmacist will show it to you. But I mean, that's, you know, because I've seen those comments, you know, the pharmacist has no right to ask me. And uh-huh. The pharmacist is asking you a question. Yeah. Generally, we're trying to understand the situation and get you your meds.
0: Well, sure. I don't want to die if I'm taking three medications together. But if my pharmacist asks me, why are you taking this medication? I'm taking it for Crohn's disease. You know, maybe my pharmacist probably knows more about this medicine than the doctor does.
1: If you don't have access to our medical records, though, Matt, and you have to determine whether a prescription is legitimate, that's a really hard thing to do unless you ask questions to patients. So,
2: and, patients and, so think- when, and, and so when people get pissed off and frustrated that the pharmacist is trying to ask them questions, trust me, we are busy enough in our day that mm-hmm. if we take a few minutes out to try to talk to you and, and understand the situation, most of us do it from a place of trying to help people. Yeah. Not pain related. If, if you tell us you have an allergy, please tell us the reaction. Right. Did you have hives? Did you get a rash? Did you stop breathing? Right. Don't just tell me you're allergic to penicillin. Right. Um, And then four, if at all possible, because this goes back to one of the DEA red flags, if you can stay with a local pain doc, please do it. Because I can tell you on good authority, at least in Maryland, we've been told if you... If your address or your doctor's address is over 25 miles from the pharmacy, they don't want us filling it.
1: And that's because that's a re- that's because that's written into the algorithm. So in direct care and 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 also the algorithms of providers too. If a patient is 25 miles in a city or 40 miles in a in you know like a, a suburban area. You're not supposed to fill it; they'll get flagged. But that's becoming increasingly harder because, like, we can't even find doctors to take patients in our state, let alone in our area at this point. Because patient abandonment is so high. So, right? It's, yeah, it's you hard. Know, the,
2: the gentleman that came in when I talked to you at the beginning of the podcast that had the prescription that was out of state, he was a local guy. You know it. I don't doubt that he had to go out of state to get his pain me- needs met, yeah. but that automatically puts him in a category that it makes it difficult to serve them because that, that is hanging out there legally.
1: You gave the tips for what pain patients can do in the pharmacy, like to, to protect them and things that would make it better. But when a pharmacist is kind of confronting or talking to a pain patient, do you have tips on the best way they could communicate with the pharmacist? Like, What are some things they can do to diffuse the situation or, or questions to ask or something? Because we're hearing this more and more that patients say that pharmacists are treating them badly.
2: Okay. If, if a pharmacist is aggressive, rude, I, I would say try to stay calm. Don't escalate the situation. Try to ask for clarification of what the issue is. You know, is it because I'm new to your pharmacy? Is it because there's an insurance issue? Is it because you can't resolve something in your corporate policy? And see what they say. If the pharmacist says, I don't believe you need pain meds and I'm exercising my legal right to refuse your prescription. Get the pharmacist's name, get the store number. And at that point, try to go somewhere else if you can. I, I know a lot of people uh, I say, well, you know, my, my insurance locks me into CVS. In most states, there are laws that say patients have the right to choose their pharmacy. So you can try to challenge your insurance company. But also if it's a big box, go up the corporate chain, talk to the district manager, talk to corporate. And if it really doesn't get resolved and they're being a real jackass, call your state board of pharmacy because a pharmacist should not treat a patient in a demeaning, belittled way.
0: Great advice from pharmacist Matt. Hey Matt, how can people follow you? Do you have a podcast?
2: So I do have a podcast. It is called the Two Druggists Podcast. It's on Apple, Spotify. It's very small. It's a niche podcast about drug information. Uh, Matter of fact, my co-host and I next episode are probably going to do an episode on gabapentin. That's a drug that everybody uh, on your forum probably has mixed feelings about. Um, And you can also find me on TikTok as Pharmacist Matt. Those are the two ways that you can Find me appropriately. Great, I'll
1: I'll link your podcast and I'll link your like TikTok account in the show notes for you. Sounds good. Sure,
0: I, I I wanted to ask one more question, and this is sure. important. This is the important question: Do pharmacists all gather together on the holidays and whoop it up for like? <laughs> For a pharmacist Christmas party and you all like show up in your best garb. Is it like a, a pharmacist convention that you all meet at?
2: There are numerous pharmacist conventions. Each state has their own state organization and usually they have a yearly convention. Maryland does theirs in July and we go down to the beach and we eat blue crabs and mm, have a good yum. time. I can tell you uh, the small pharmacy I work at, we have a big Christmas party party with the whole company there's about a hundred people and families and it's, it's usually very good all right most pharmacists are usually quirky but usually outside we're pretty relaxed
0: yeah i love my pharmacist i love after after this podcast bev i'd say that i have a new respect for pharmacists so go easy on your pharmacist you guys show some love for the pharmacist show some love for pharmacist matt thank you for taking time out of your day and tuning into this episode of the doctor patient forum podcast.
1: As you heard earlier in the podcast, pharmacist Matt was talking about a good faith prescribing checklist that he heard about from Walgreens, but he hadn't seen it in print yet. So I was going to see what I could find. And then I published this episode last night. And first thing this morning, I had a direct message from an amazing advocate, Anne Fuquay, And she sent me the good faith prescribing checklist from Walgreens. So we are going to link it in the show notes. This is why I love networking with other advocates, because we can pool our resources, share information, help each other. We're all in this together, and we truly need to all work together to try to fix this because of the mess that's been created. So thank you so much, Anne, for sending this to me. I really appreciate it. Thank you once again for listening to our podcast. If you're enjoying our podcast, please follow us on Spotify. Leave us a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts and share with anyone that you think might benefit from this information. If you have any comments that you would like to leave us about this episode, as always, please reach out to us at Bev at the doctorpatientforum.com or claudia at the doctorpatientforum.com We look forward to bringing you the next episode of the Dr. Patient Forum podcast. Just a quick disclaimer that what you hear in our podcast is not to be considered medical or legal advice. We will always provide links in the show notes to give evidence for what we are saying.